Am I standing in a good spot? You tell me to move. Tell me to move. All right. I'm already riffing. I, I'm not on my notes right now. It's getting out of hand. All right. Um, good morning. I'm Dan Ware. I'm one of the music leaders, MC leaders, uh, deacon at BC, and I've never preached before in my life. So uh, that is your warning. And uh, it's a little-known fact that I can be rather long-winded. Maybe it's a well-known fact. I don't know. To me, it might be a surprise to some of you that I can talk for a really long time, but you can ask any of my kids, and they will attest to that. Dad's many sermons. Many, but... All right. So um, I will do my best to be concise and to the point, and I thank you in advance for uh, your grace to me in listening today, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to expound the word. So, uh, kids, where are you at today? You raise your hands. Where I see all the kids today. All right. Can one of you tell me what it means to be in awe of something, to be filled with awe? Zeke. Shocked. That's the face he made. Zaley. Amazed. Right. It's really cool. Amazing. Wow. It takes your breath away. <gasps> um, all right. So what's something that you've been in awe of that's just so amazing it took your breath away? Any kids? Volunteers? What you got? In the back there. What was that? Anybody? Friend coming to your house today. Yes, it's exciting. I'm probably going to forget things today, too. So, yeah. Video games. Yes. Playing into my hands. I was hoping for that. All right, Drew. Never being able to pay off your debt. Okay. Thank you, Drew. All right. Uh, so, why? What makes that amazing? Like you can answer this by who made it amazing, or what about it is amazing? Specifically, maybe video games. So, kind of. Yeah. Got because God made the people that made the game. Yeah, it's good. Silly. And get to live an experience that you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Um, so, one of the purposes of a video game, specifically, like maybe a, uh, the beginning of the Fortnite season, there's this big thing that happens, and everybody watches this event, and it's like, whoa, it's so cool. The creators worked really hard on that, right? They really wanted that to be awesome. And so, the, and the way they did that, or the reason they did that, is because they want you to. What? To play, to, be, <laughs> to play the game, right? They want you to play the game. They want, you to, uh, they want to lead you to believe something or think something, right? So it's, a, it's meant to get your attention. So in today's chapter, something happens that fills the people 
with awe, with wonder and amazement. Peter, as he's going into the temple, sees a man crippled from birth. This man's never been able to walk before. He's 40 years old, never been able to walk. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. He grabs the man's hand and he pulls him up. And the man stands onto two powerfully strong, perfectly healthy legs. Is that amazing, kids? Somebody being healed 40 years not being able to walk? Yes. Um, if you saw that, knowing the man had never been able to walk, you would be in awe also. Um, so this gets their attention. And the way that Peter responds helps us understand why it happened. Peter says, let me tell you why it happened. It happened because of faith in Jesus. And now I get to tell you the good news, that if you believe in Jesus, he can give you perfect health in your heart. Your broken relationship with God can be fixed. So, like Fortnite is meant to draw your attention to, to the game, to lead you to want something or believe something, to grab your attention, to be drawn into it. In this chapter, God uses an amazing thing in order to draw attention to who do you think? Who do you think the, the miracle is supposed to draw attention to? Jesus, yes. All right, thanks, kids. Um, you should go home whenever you're sitting at the dinner or the dinner table today and you pick up your fork or you grab, grab your food. Let that be a, a cue. I should ask my parents more about what, how awesome Jesus is today. All right? All right, thanks for your participation. Um, Daniel Welker is going to come up and read the chapter for us. And the chapter today is Acts in chapter 3, and it's the whole chapter. Yeah, better get comfortable. <laughs> so Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Thanks, Daniel. All right, let's pray. Holy God, Father, Spirit, Son, you are wonderful, worthy of our awe and amazement. And we pray that your word would speak to us today. Spirit, would you empower us to hear and obey the gospel? the good news of Jesus, our Savior, today, to be changed more into the people you've made us to be. Amen. So we're in Acts, which we know is a series of two uh, works, a a two-series work written by Luke, the Gospel of Luke being the first. Uh, In the first chapter of Acts, Luke says that the previous book contained all that Jesus began to teach. And now we're in Acts, which I would summarize as all that Jesus continued to do and teach through the Spirit, through his body, the church. So today's a great example of that. And today is a story, which I'm thankful that I got to preach on a story, because um, on a passage like this, there's not too much that's unclear or in need of interpretation. It's pretty straightforward. And where Peter's talking, he's trying to speak in order that the hearers would, would understand. So... Um, so I'm going to do some work to set the scene and uh, give you the setting for this story. Uh, last week, we saw a brief description of the life of the believers in this new age of a Holy Spirit-indwelt church. There are a few things that happen in this chapter that give us a glimpse of the things described in last week's passage. Uh, Acts 2.43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Today we see a miracle that's responded to with wonder and amazement, followed by teaching from Peter. Uh, Acts 2.46 uh, says that day by day they were attending the temple. And then two verses after that in this chapter, um, Peter and John are attending the temple. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the prayers could refer to praying at the temple according to the tradition of the day. Uh, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer also. So I think we're meant to see this as an immediate example of what's happening in the church, which is really good for us. And this occurs at the temple, which is extremely significant in this part of the story. Acts, as the gospel begins of Acts, sorry, uh, the gospel begins in Jerusalem and spreads to the world. So the temple gives us a reference point for the scale of the prevailing religion and power structures of the time. And it also gives us a context for what Peter says to the crowd who were attending the temple for worship. So I have a slide here of the temple. Um, This is probably what it looked like. And I should mention, this is actually the temple mount. This whole structure is the temple mount. And then the temple is the smaller structure with like the white building in the middle. 
Um, all right. And this happens at the ninth hour. You can leave that up for now. Uh, this happens at the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. So just a regular afternoon, everyone going about their business. Verse 2 says, A man lame from birth was being carried to the beautiful gate. And there's debate on which gate this was, but um, there's a leaning toward, at least one blog post was leaning towards uh, the gate being on this next slide, where it's circled down towards, towards us. And so... So look, looking at this picture, it kind of blows my mind how big it was, especially for the day. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of a modern structure that would have the same scale, grandeur, and direct religious significance as this. Um, maybe a football stadium. This could be kind of religious. But uh, the Temple Mount was 35 acres. So that, that's a 35-acre uh, piece of land, and the temple itself was the size of a football field or football stadium, like not field at the actual stadium. Um, but it wasn't just a big structure. It was the life of the Jewish people, the center of the life of the culture. Um, and, and then it's at the beautiful gate. Um, if you look at this next picture, like that's that little bitty gate and a person standing next to it. Um, so just the, how big of a deal, like the, the, Jewish culture was in the time, and um, like their life surround was was just completely enveloped in that. Um, so imagine Peter and John, two tiny blips in a crowd. If you go back to the first picture, um, yes. So like those are people, those little dots. So they're going uh, two little blips. Uh, a man lay from birth, laying there, and. Um, just that this incredible thing happens in the middle of, of it, so that like big enough impact that 5,000 people we learn uh, turn to God. Um, so Peter and John are going to the temple, the hour of prayer. There's a man lame from birth, and he sees Peter and John about, about to go into the temple and asks them for alms. Peter and John going about the regular rhythm of attending the temple with other believers, and this man, they're doing that, and it, this man gets their attention. Uh, Peter takes time to stop and address this man as a person with a need. He says, look at us. I think this is, I don't want to lose the significance here. Imagine walking for yourself. Imagine walking past someone in need like this. It's hard to imagine because people in this kind of need don't usually cross our paths in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, but just take a moment to think of a scenario where you have to pass by someone in need of help who's asking for help from people walking by. Imagine stopping in front of that person and saying, look at me. That would be a moment. Uh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say next? What's going to go through that person's mind? Hundreds of people pass by every day, not noticing or ignoring, sometimes dropping coins, never addressing the person as a person. I think the way Peter engaged the man shows intentional care and love for him. He wasn't just a tool to bring people's attention to Jesus. Um, God took time, Peter took time to stop and pay attention to this seemingly insignificant man laying at the gate. God specifically points out, you, you are going to be the recipient of my special healing power. And that's the kind of heart, the kind of work that Jesus wants to do, the Spirit wants to do through us as we address needs, as we engage people. We aren't just meeting needs, we are extending and showing the mercy and the love of Jesus toward individual people made in God's image. 
So Peter has addressed this man in a way he is not used to. So he's going to pay attention. He's going to be ready and expectant. He says, I have no silver and gold, this is verse 6, but what I do have, I give you. What greater gift than strength and perfect health? What, what's better than that? This man is 40 years old, so I'm almost 40. I'm trying to imagine if I was unable to walk, zero use of my legs my entire life, people carrying me around, what more would I possibly want than perfect health? I can't imagine anything more desirable than that. All the wealth in the world cannot make you perfectly healthy. This man was expecting to receive silver or gold, and it didn't even cross his mind that what he could get is the cure for his most basic need, his most basic lack. So Peter is saying, I have no silver and gold, but I have health. I have real wholeness. I have Jesus. We see later that um, it's in the name of Jesus, faith in the name of Jesus, that heals him. So Peter's saying, I'm offering you a step of faith with legs that don't work. Peter's pretty proud of that one. Uh, so, and uh, then he takes him by the right hand, raises him up, which, which I think is an act of faith in itself. Peter's reaching out. The man is reaching up and grabbing his hand. And I think that's a, a great picture of faith. And immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. The swiftness of this whole thing is crazy. Everybody's going about their day, minding their own business, and bam, you hear somebody say, look at us, get up and walk. Suddenly, this guy who's never been able to walk is jumping up and down. Um, similarly, in Acts 2, uh, the sending of the Spirit was sudden and unexpected. They were expectantly praying, but they didn't know what was going to happen. And in a moment, the Spirit blew everything up and broke into their everyday obedient faithful prayer, prayerful life, and uh, turned everything upside down. All right, so verse 8, uh, leaping up, he followed them. He's walking and leaping and praising God, and that's what the people saw. So his response is what got the people's attention, got their response. His immediate response was to praise God. There's no indication that this man knew anything about Jesus. We don't know whether he did or not, but he knew the God of Israel. He knew who to thank and who to give the recognition to. So circumstances would seem to indicate that this healing either coincided or bolstered fresh faith in this man's life. Um, and then on to verse 11, the man clung to Peter and John, which makes sense. You're going to want to be around the person that is the path or the tool of, of this kind of healing. Um, it also reinforces that Peter loved the man, the individual person, uh, he didn't just do it because he knew it would draw attention, like I said before. Um, and the people ran to them in the portico called Solomon's. I don't even think Peter necessarily expected maybe to draw a crowd, but he was ready whenever the crowd was drawn. But I think first and foremost, Peter wanted to see the kingdom come into this man's life. That's why he stopped. Um, and here, it's kind of a parentheses to um, what I'm saying. Uh, just something that, that's been a conviction that God's been convicting me of recent, recently. I was a little hesitant to share it because it's like the way it's a, it's a conviction I've had um, of sin in my heart and it's going to take more time uh, and maybe not directly applicable to the passage, but I, I just want to take some time here. Uh, to see Peter's loving attention and then continued fellowship with 
this man is convicting to me. My tendency is to be hesitant to get involved in helping people in need. If that's donating money, uh, conversations, or even an hour or two, I'm good to go. Like, I can do that. But if it means a significant chunk of my time and or my comfort, um, then I'm not so good to go. More, a lot more hesitant. I don't want to commit to the further commitment. Like, if I engage this person, I'll be liable for engaging to them in the future in a meaningful way. And I, I really want to know how Jesus and the apostles maintained obedience to God in reaching more and more people while also exhibiting, like, real kindness and love because they had thousands of people vying for their attention, wanting a relationship, you know, it's their time. Um, and I know my hesitation to engage people because I don't want to have the weight of a relationship is, that's not right. That's not the way I should be. It's, um, it's a sinful thing. But there's a way to manage relationships. Jesus and the apostles managed it. The apostles appointed deacons to take care of serving tables and a lot of the everyday just relational administrative stuff. Um, Jesus and the apostles prioritized, and that would have meant that they were able to find a balance of maintaining relationships but not letting relationships overwhelm them to the point where there's nothing else they can do but spend all their time with specific people. Um, so I, like, I want to learn how to do that balance, but I think for me the biggest application here is that I need to, to do it. I need to create rhythms in my life that overlap people that need Jesus and in faith love people and meet people's needs. And that's probably going to have some effects on my time and my comfort. But the effects on my heart are going to be good. It's going to be God's kingdom fulfilled in my life as much as the people's lives around me. Um, so I've just felt very convicted about that over the last several months, year. And I'm praying that God will continue to speak to me in that and help me love people like he loves people. But another parenthesis or one major oversight or blind spot I think I've had with this um, is implied in this story. It's that Peter and John, as they healed this man, they were not the only community that this man was drawn into as he was healed. He became part of the church. I mean, it's implied. I mean, I'm drawing this out, but Acts 5.12 says that the believers were all together in Solomon's portico. Like, this is where the church met. And so... That, and that's where they directly walked to after um, he healed them. So he became part of the body that was forming of the Holy Spirit and dwelt people that cared for one another and shared all things in common. So I think my hesitation to invite people into my life and relationship um, is in some part due to my individualist mindset. That it's all on me. That since I started this relationship, I'm the one that has to, sole one that has to maintain it. And, you know, without any heart, hardly any thought toward the people in my community my fellowship of the Spirit, as we talked about last week. Um, those people are a part of, of this work, this, these relationships. And I'm welcoming this person into a community, and it's wrong of me to make it all about me. So I think there's a shift that's happening in my mind and my heart. I want to invite people into a community, uh, loving, open-handed, spirit-indwelt people, living like these people in Acts. I want our church to be that. I want us to be open-handed, spirit-indwelt. And um, I think that, that takes shape as people are invited into it. So as we create, as a church, rhythms to cross paths with people in need of Jesus, our church gets an opportunity to welcome and share and meet needs. 
So just that we'd stop trying to do it ourselves because we're a body. We're the body of Christ. Um, and we're individual parts of a body. And so like a foot or hand or kneecap can't do anything on its own. So there's end of parentheses. All right, uh, on to verse 12. So this is where part, Peter begins to address the people. The people's attention has been grabbed. So Peter is going to use this opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus, call people to repentance. He begins by addressing their propensity to wonder first at human power or piety, like righteousness, rather than giving credit to God. He says, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? So why does he ask a question here? Is it rhetorical? Or is he really just perplexed? Like, what is wrong with you guys? Uh, I think it's both a little bit. I think that he's wondering at the people's disbelief, quickness to explain it away or give a man credit. But he's also starting a speech. He, he's for, I think he's forming a statement as a question. Uh, which is a rhetorical question. So one way to state it would be, this man was healed by Jesus, not by our power. So he could have just said that. But supposing it as a question leaves Peter room to paint the answer with a broad sweeping brush. I think it's a very eloquent and rhetorically rich proclamation. Uh, I get goosebumps towards the end of it. Uh, okay, so verse 13. Remember here that he's standing in the temple where the, the crowd is gathered to worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. So this is a very powerful springboard for his proclamation. Here we're standing in the center of our religion, the center of our faith, and I'm proclaiming to you that this, is God, this God that we worship is Jesus. That he calls Jesus a servant here is not lost on them. A servant Messiah type person was very much part of their understanding of Old Testament prophecies, which he references multiple times through this address. He makes reference to more than just one section of the Old Testament, but Isaiah 52, 53 stand out to me. That's what we refer to as the suffering servant passage. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read some of it. Um, but as I read it, just imagine this is a passage you've heard before, but now it's being explained to you for the first time that this is Jesus who you tried and condemned to death. So uh, Isaiah 52, 13, and then there's slides for this. So, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then later, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So good. Uh, so he explains that they delivered over and denied this servant, Jesus. And if there's any question about their guilt, he reminds them that Pilate was going to release him, but they insisted. They asked for a murderer instead. Um, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who can, the question is, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So the answer to this question is nobody. At least nobody in this crowd. Nobody was thinking, this is the servant who is meant to come and suffer for us. But what he's saying is, this is the servant, and you killed him. He says, you killed the author of life. This is one of the most powerful phrases in this chapter. You killed life. It's a dichotomy. It's a contrast between two things that are or are represented as being opposite or entirely different. What a serious and powerful statement. What could be worse than the accusation, you killed life, like you literally killed life? That's crazy. And we'll come back to this in verse 19. So here comes the clincher. This author of life, he says, God raised from the dead. This Jesus is alive. Not only that, he's the one who has given this man perfect health. Um, in Acts 2, we looked at um, last two weeks ago. It says God raised Jesus because it wasn't possible. It was never possible that the author of life could be contained by death. So here's the meat of what Peter's saying. These people saw the things that happened with Jesus. These people killed Jesus. They were aware of his ministry, but the part they did not see, what they were not witness to, was his resurrection. The apostles' main job was to proclaim the resurrected Jesus as the Messiah. The proclamation of the resurrection is what gets them in trouble as well. The resurrection is a twofold problem for the Sadducees because they were complicit in Jesus' death and they also didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, so the resurrection, um, and the Sadducees were the leaders of the temple at the time. And chapter four says they, um, they were greatly annoyed because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection is an offense, but it's also the power of Peter's proclamation. Because of Jesus, because of Peter was just saying, that was the author of life. That was the servant, and you killed him. Way to go. Like, that's the end of the story. Then there's no offense, and there's also no power in that message. So there's no gospel without the resurrection. All right, verse 16. It's helpful here to point out that uh, Acts 4, 9 through 12, gives another, Peter gives another explanation of how the man was healed. Um, I think there's, there's maybe not a slide. There it is. I forgot to write slide on my notes, so uh, I'm taking time to just explain that. Uh, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is the Savior, the servant Messiah. Jesus is the Jesus gave this man perfect health. He made him whole. It's the same call that Jesus is giving to these hearers, to this crowd. Jesus gives perfect health. He doesn't just fix our problems and heal our ailments. He gives perfect health. He renews our innermost being to be whole and complete. And then Peter says, uh, this is man whom you see and know, and that this is done in the presence of you all. Um, I think there's a side of grace here I want to note. It's just the fact that God used signs and wonders to undergird the message of the gospel, uh, being made right with God. Jesus cares about our disbelief and our propensity to not believe things we can't see. He's gracious, and he gives us physical things that we can see and hold on to, things that can strengthen our faith and help us when we don't see or help us believe things we can't see. So anyway, um, he says the faith that is through Jesus. So I think that helps give a little bit more definition what he means when he says faith in, in his name, which can be a little hard to understand. But So on a straightforward level, it's the faith that is through Jesus that healed this man. This faith is what Peter is calling the people to as well. Simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 17, he says, Brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. So he's calling them brothers because they have kinship in being the sons of Abraham and the covenant that God made with the fathers. Um, I think we can do this too when we call people to faith in Jesus. We can call people brothers and sisters because we have the same invitation to be part of his family because of Jesus. Um, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance. And my first reaction when I read this is, don't give them a pass. Like, they're guilty. But he's definitely not giving them a pass. And we'll see this more in, in verse 19. Um, and also the phrase, you acted in ignorance, is pretty loaded with meaning. Um, if we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, um, it gives us some understanding of that. It says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which, can, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So um, the prophecies of Christ were in plain sight in, in this passage that I read earlier from Isaiah but they were only discernible by the wisdom of God, which we now know is revealed through the Spirit, who is causing all this chaos right now in this story. But the wisdom of this age is what decided to kill the author of life. If they'd have known, they and the rulers wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So he's not, not letting them off the hook when he says they acted in ignorance. He doesn't say, you didn't know what you were doing, so it's okay. He said, you didn't know what you were doing, so now, that you're, so now that your opportunity to see that you're wrong, turn and repent. And we'll talk about that um, in verse 19 again. Uh, so verse 18, the prophecies have been fulfilled through your ignorance. God ordained that you would do this. Isaiah 53, 8 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Certainly, a good number of these hearers knew what prophecy he was talking about and how their complicity in Jesus' death was its fulfillment. The gospel is so powerful in this passage. The suffering servant is suffering by the hands of his people, his generation. That's the gospel. You killed the author of life. We are guilty of betraying the one who created us. But if we turn, if we recognize what we've done, if we're convicted of our sin, of our rebellion against God, and we turn to him, the ultimate outcome of our rebellion is salvation. That's amazing. Okay, verse 19, call to repentance. He says, repent and turn back, which are synonyms. It's a great picture of what repentance is. It's like he's saying, turn back and turn back. Repentance is turning from one way, any way, other than God's way, back to God and his way. Back to Jesus, the author of life. Just saying, Jesus, you are my authority, and I believe that you are the Messiah, and that your suffering was for me, and that belief in you, faith in your name, will make me strong. Give me perfect health. So they went headlong into denying and even killing God. But the very nature of his redemption work is for the salvation of those that deny, kill, and persecute him. This passage from John Newton does an amazing job of capturing the heart of the gospel. Jesus dying for us at our hands so that we can have life. And I'm going to read it here. It says, Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, my Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom shed. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live through him I killed. So admit your sin and turn back. You freaking killed God. How can it get any worse than that? Jesus is calling his murderers to faith in him through the death that they caused him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your indescribable gift. Uh, then he says that your sins may be blotted out. And this is almost a direct quote from um, Isaiah 40, 44, 22, which says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And now here, Peter doesn't exactly quote Isaiah 44, 22, but it's where he gets his language. And I think that's something he's meditated on, saturated his mind with, so when he speaks, it comes out in his words. So that's a really good encouragement to us, that the word of God is in you, which means you've dwelt on it, meditated on it, memorized it. It will show in your speech. As the word of God changes our hearts, it also changes our speech. All right, verse 20. It says, um, repent so that times of refreshing may come. That sounds very Isaiah-like. Refreshing, refreshing makes me think of water, springtime, life. 
Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And later it talks about going forth in joy, being led forth in peace, all creation breaking forth into singing. So this is what Peter is inviting them to. Times of refreshing as God brings his kingdom through the Christ, who is Jesus. And then he says, um, the Christ appointed for you. And I, this begins a kind of an argument sandwich of verses 20 through 26, 20 being the, the top bread, 25 through 26 being the bottom bread. Um, I think it's the long form call to repentance with the argument that Jesus is the true Messiah sent to Israel, these people, these listeners, first. He's sent to them first. He's calling them to turn to him that they can be part of the fulfilling of the promises and prophecies from long ago. These Israelites were chosen by God through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. Now they know that also meant that they would be implicit in the suffering of his servant, but the call is still to them. God is gracious to them so that the message of the gospel goes out to, to them first. They are offered the work of spreading God's true kingdom of Jesus in the world as it goes out to the nations. And um, then he says, who, Jesus, who heaven must receive. So he says, Jesus has ascended to heaven. Um, and Peter is obviously not giving a long explanation of why Jesus had to return to the Father. But he does say that what is happening now, as God's kingdom is expanding, is part of what Jesus is doing on his throne in heaven. So, uh, and, and Jesus said in Luke 24, 26 through 27, that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. And then I uh, have a slide, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, and there's a lot of eschatology which is like the part of theology concerned with the death, the judgment, and final destiny of the soul of humankind. Um, so a lot of eschatology here. We can go into Daniel, Revelation, even Ephesians. But the main point here is that the current reign of Jesus and his return to heaven is all part of the fulfillment of the scripture these hearers were familiar with. All right, and then verse 22 through 23. Um, this is from Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, which is another reference to this the servant, Messiah, prophet, um, says, listen to him, whatever he tells you. If you don't listen, you'll be destroyed from the people. And this warning is real. Turn from your rebellion against God, or you will be cut off from the kingdom. So he's again saying, turn to Jesus. Just admit your sin and admit your wrong and embrace God in the face of Jesus Christ, in his name. You're supposed to be the people ushering in the kingdom. Don't miss it. Verse 24, all the prophets spoke of these days. So this was the establishment in this, um, the, the, the passage from Deuteronomy, Moses talking, is the establishment of the prophetic line in Israel. Um, Moses referring both to the fact that God would begin using prophets to com communicate to his people and that there was coming an ultimate prophet that would fulfill the prophecies. Um, so the prophets up until Jesus, from Moses to Jesus, um, were a shadow of the true prophet, who was Jesus. All right, I've got two pages left, guys. All right. Verse 25 and 26 punch home this argument of 20, 20 through 26. A proclamation and charge to the people of who he's calling to repent. 
He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And we can reference Isaiah 55, referring to the promise, of, promise to David. It says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. And then driving on this point, the last powerful proclamation and call that God raised up his servant, we look at, again, at Isaiah 52. I'm going to slide here. Um, some excerpts. Um, he shall be high and lifted up, this servant, and he shall be exalted. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You are the sons of the prophets, God's chosen people, chosen to be the first to receive his Messiah. God sent him to you first to be the means by which he shares his grace with the nations. And he says, um, by turning you, bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Another phrase not lost on them. They knew they had a rebellious past, the constant cycle of rebelling against God, turning back to him. Then things blow up because of what they've done. Then they turn back to God and then they blow it again and they just keep messing up. But God had reiterated his promise to deliver them, to deliver them throughout this entire cycle. Um, Romans eleven twenty six says, And in this way is all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Ezekiel three nineteen talks about warning the wicked, so turning you from your wickedness. Um, but if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And then um, Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Messiah prophet that God raised up. And he's saying to them, you killed the Messiah. God raised him up. Repent. Turn. The promise is for you. Believe. Don't continue in your wickedness. This is the same call to us. So this ends the record of Peter's speech. By the time the Sadducees came out to stop him, it was evening. So the miracle happened at three, and then it was evening. So he'd been talking for a long time. And so at least I'm not talking that long. Uh, in chapter 4, we learned that the result of this event and proclamation was that many who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. It's such a good passage, and it's so encouraging to see God's work of salvation culminate here so that Peter can proclaim the prophecies fulfilled. Hundreds of years of waiting, the people struggling to believe and follow, the constant cycle of disbelief, Repentance, disbelief, and all pointing forward to the day when their Messiah would come. The servant sent to them who would suffer and die by their hands, and that would save them, and through them all the nations be drawn into God's family. Through this gospel, we can be given perfect health, and we get the Spirit to be indwelled by very God, 
to be made whole, able to do what we're created to do, which is to reflect God, to know him and love him and be part of the fellowship of, of the church, but the, which is also the fellowship of the Father, Spirit, and Son. So final application for us from this passage. As we see this man being healed and all that Peter did, we kind of want to put ourselves in Peter's shoes. Like, we're going to do these mighty things for God and make these powerful declarations. But knowing the context, the temple, who Peter's talking to, who are we in this story? Who are we more like? Are we more like the hearers, Peter, the lame man, we're not the physical nation of Israel like they were. We haven't had the promises of Abraham handed down through our family line. I think we're most like the lame man. But everyone in this story is like the lame man. Nothing in this story happens without the direction and intervention of God. The Holy Spirit is the invisible agent sent and directed by Jesus, who God is actively bringing all things under his feet as his kingdom grows into the world. So without the spirit, neither Peter nor the lamb man nor the crowd have any hope. And this, I have a, a quote here from Daryl L. Bach, commentary on Acts. It says, some wish to highlight the Holy Spirit as key, as a key theme in Acts, but the spirit's work is under God's sovereign direction and that of Jesus the one mediating the Spirit's distribution. So Jesus is directing this story. He's the one that sent the helper. He's the one mediating the Spirit's distribution. As God is set, setting all things under Jesus' feet, Jesus is mediating to the Father on behalf of his people. And the Spirit is the one, the agent by which the mediating results and the blessings of God and the realization of the rule of Jesus come to fruition in the life of believers. The Holy Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son, is at work, and it's awesome that we are drawn into that. The Spirit is the power, the wind of that. So thank you, Spirit, for your work. We want you. We want you to indwell us and come upon us like the believers in this book and to share in your life to be part of the work of Jesus as we are his body. Jesus, thank you for, your, for sending the Spirit. Father, thank you for receiving Jesus until the time for restoring all the things about which you spoke by the mouth of your holy prophets long ago. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen.